0: reach out to me at stephanie@mission.org at to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Upnext in Commerce. Welcome to Upnext in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital retail and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of mission.org. And I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family? Travel? The latest TV show? Yes, yes, and hmm, maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities? Or little discussed financial trends? Or maybe even plant medicine benefits, and alternative wellness. Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Hey, everyone. Today, I'm talking to Mike Beckham, the co-founder and CEO of Simple Modern, a company that designs and sells some amazing drinkware. Mike has also previously co-founded several e-commerce businesses that have had sales of more than a billion dollars, which I'm super excited to chat about today. Mike, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, hey, thanks for having me, Stephanie. Great to be with you.
0: Yeah, same. I'm really excited. Today, it's been an interesting day because I had a show earlier that was around social good and social impact. So after now you're coming on too, I'm like, this whole day is full with these conversations and I'm getting smarter and smarter. So I'm excited to talk to you today.
1: I love to talk about that theme. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So you've spent half your career in the nonprofit space and half in for-profit. And I just want to kind of start there because I think that's an interesting mix. Usually when I meet someone, it's like they figure out a path and they're like, I'm nonprofit for good now or for-profit and they've never experimented. I want to hear your mindset around like how you even think about where you want to play.
1: Absolutely. So I, I was a finance undergrad major and I really thought I was going to go into the business world. Uh, and then very unexpectedly, uh, even, even today, I couldn't walk you through my entire thought process. I ended up choosing to go into the nonprofit world. uh, And I thought I'd do that for a year or maybe two. And it really turned into 10. And I, I think that one of the things I learned through the process, I learned a lot of different things through the process. But one of them is that when I was a student, I had this very like linear view of my career as it was almost like a ladder that you kind of climb up. And so obviously, if you want to be an entrepreneur like, you know, going into the nonprofit world is not at all like what comes to the front of your mind of how you prepare yourself for that. But the reality is careers today and the the culture we live in, they are shorter and that there's that you'll have more of them over the course of your life uh, than previous generations. And that it's just not as linear as we tend to think it is. So like I I teach at the University of Oklahoma and I I tell students this all the time, like, hey, you can take a deep breath. I know you feel a lot of pressure. You got to make absolutely the perfect decision right out of college or about what's next in your career. But the reality is that you're going to probably try a lot of things and that it takes a while to really find your giftings and where you want to focus your time. Ironically, what I learned from being in the nonprofit world is not only did I learn a lot about culture, what I want my life to be about, building healthy teams, but I also, I, I learned a ton of skills that actually translated to the for-profit world way better than I would have ever anticipated, whether that is sales or recruiting, you know, vision casting, uh, strategic planning, all those things. I actually really honed those skills in the nonprofit world. So in general, I would, I would say that I, I think it helped me to be a more well-rounded leader by working in the nonprofit world and the for-profit world. It helped me to have probably more empathy uh, as a person, which has made me a more effective leader. And ultimately, it helped me to have a clear vision of what I wanted to build. You know, you'll hear companies talk about having a mission, vision, value kind of document. And when I think about the mission statement for Simple Modern, our mission statement's actually this really atypical, we exist to give generously. But it all flows back to if you're going to spend as much of your time and effort and life building a company as it takes, because it is hard. You should have a compelling reason why you're doing it. And so for me, it's been incredibly helpful. And I think it's made me a more effective leader when I can clearly communicate to the people that I work with. Here is why we exist. Here's why I get fired up and you should get fired up about what we get to do every day. And a lot of that stuff had its seeds in uh, working in the nonprofit
0: world. Mm, I love that. Okay. So that's already teeing up a conversation that will happen in a little bit. I'm going to come back to around like culture and tea building. But now that you've brought up Simple Modern, tell me a bit about, you know, what is Simple Modern and what was the inspiration to starting this company?
1: Absolutely. So Simple Modern is a uh, omni-channel consumer brand. At this point, uh, we do nine figures of revenue and sell more than 10 million units uh, a year to customers all over the globe, although we're mostly concentrated in the United States and we sell drinkware primarily, although we've, we've got our, our fingers in a lot of other product categories that we're growing into and, and learning about. The genesis of the company is there were two guys that I had worked with at a previous company that I helped start. In the department that we all worked in, that I managed, we just had exceptional culture. So one day they approached me and said, hey, we would love to just start like a side project with you where maybe we open you know, a website, we sell on Amazon Marketplace. It doesn't have to be anything big. We just love to work with you some more in the context of something we created ourselves and where we could really define the culture and the purpose. And I thought that was a really compelling and fun idea. I'd be lying if I said that we anticipated it growing into what it's become today. But we started with this idea of the type of culture we wanted to build. We wanted to sell online because we all had deep e-commerce expertise uh, and we wanted to sell really high quality products. uh, And we wanted the company to be about generosity. That was pretty much what we knew. So before we even knew the product we wanted to sell, we knew the type of company we wanted to build and the type of uh, channel we wanted to use to sell. uh, And then we worked backwards from that. So the first products we sold weren't even insulated drinkware. We sold like a tea infuser and baking mats. I think were the first two products that we tried on the Amazon marketplace. And we had just enough success that we realized we were probably onto something. And then the moment that we started selling drinkware there was immediate product market fit. We realized that there was a space in the market for a digital first mindset, premium quality, really relevant style, but at affordable prices. Uh, and so we've we've kind of been on a crazy, uh, torrid growth trajectory ever since.
0: Amazing. And I, for anyone who has not looked up Simple Modern, because I had never gone to your website directly, but I was like, wait, I already know all these products. I mean, I get them at Target and I mean, I think you guys are in many other places, but... They line the shelves of stores that i go to so it was really cool to kind of connect the dots right before this interview and be like whoa they're everywhere yeah i want to hear though like how did you see that white space because to me what you're saying is like every entrepreneur's dream i want to start a company okay maybe not everyone, but like some of them like i want to start a company i want to have you know social impact i want to do good i want to have good culture and just like work with my homies or whatever like have a good time right and let's figure out the product afterwards like usually it's the other way like we have a good product and now let's you know, scale up all the other pieces. But how did you see that white space while building it in kind of a different way than what I've heard?
1: <laughs> yeah, I've I've talked about this actually a lot. And I think it starts with the way that you view the business environment and kind of competition in general. And I, I teach entrepreneurship. That's, that's the class I teach at the university. And there's this presupposition by students, and really we all kind of have it, that successful businesses are built out of a unique or bespoke idea, right? Like doing something nobody else is doing. And in some ways that's true, but in another way, that's actually more misleading because what it leads people to think is I've got to develop, you know, a totally new product that the market hasn't seen. And that's going to be the way that I start a company. And for sure, some people do that. But if you really look at, startups. And where successful startups come from, 99% of them are meeting an established need in a slightly different or better way than the current competition is. And they're able to carve out a niche for themselves by addressing the market in that way. So for us, the idea of launching a water bottle company seems like a suicidal idea. I mean, there were tons of competitors. Some of them, like Thermos and Stanley, are like, you know, over 100 years old. We were bootstrapped. We didn't have outside funding. We started the company with $200,000. And so we're underfunded in an insanely competitive industry with, you know, entrenched competitors that have been around forever. And then newer companies like Yeti that were on fire and had built great brands. Why in the world would it be a good idea to launch a hydration company? What we realized was as many Companies as there were and as robust as the market was, there were still under-focused on aspects of serving the customer that created white space for us to attack. Two of them in particular that we saw, one was that there was this transition happening in drinkware where water bottles were becoming more like an accessory than simply a functional thing that you buy. So obviously like when I've got a tumbler or whatever, part of the purpose of this tumbler is for me to be able to you know, hydrate myself and stuff like that. But also we saw this trend of them becoming more like a watch or shoes where there's a functional piece but there's also this stylistic piece. So we looked at the environment and said, hey, there's room to be, be creative and differentiate with ornamentation and colors. And for sure, that's how the market has kind of gone. Uh, At the point in time when we launched, there were, you know, Yeti, for example, was still everything they were selling was stainless steel. People were kind of enamored with the technology, but the style piece of it hadn't really been explored. The other thing that we saw was that there was an under-emphasis by some of our competitors on digital. So a lot of times, it's not even that you have to have a better mousetrap but that you see a different delivery mechanism. This was the story of D2C as well, that as technology evolves and as the marketplace evolves, there's constantly new ways that you can get your product to customers that create opportunity. There's one final point that I like to make here, which is it's counterintuitive, but it's kind of a breakthrough once you realize it. If you look at any given industry and you say, okay, this company is the best, right? In this case, like let's just say in insulated drinkware, let's say Yeti's the best company in this industry. And, and they're really great at what they do. Their greatness is also their weakness. And here's what I mean by that. Great companies focus on certain ways of doing things. They have very defined strategies about here are the price points we want to be at. Here's the distribution strategy that we want to take. Here's what we're not going to play in. And so, what makes them great is actually having a real focus on doing business a particular type of way when it comes to their holistic strategy. When you look at that, it's easy to be intimidated by what they do well and say, I could never go up against that. That would be suicidal. But if you invert that and you say, what are the things that by definition, they don't want to do and where they don't want to compete, Is there an opportunity for me there? A lot of times you see, hey, there's actually a lot of white space kind of hiding in plain sight. And so a great example in our industry were there were several really premium brands. Hydroflask could be another great example, which were great brands, but they were really focused on specialty retail or growing their own website. They were not as focused on the targets and Walmarts of the world or growing their Amazon business. And as a result, that left an opportunity for us to get in there and get a foothold.
0: Mm, That's cool, I love. I was just thinking about like a Venn diagram in my mind of like, if you're analyzing a market and a company being like, they don't wanna play in that space. But what if, like my first thought is, okay, is that enough of a moat though when creating a company saying, okay, they don't wanna be at the Targets and the Walmarts. My first thought is they can probably if they wanted to, they're just, or Amazon, like anyone can go on there and probably crush it really quickly. Like, how do you think about, yes, it's a white space, And it's enough to have a moat that a bigger incumbent can't just come in and, you know, take it over because of that.
1: It's a great question. And I think it's two parts. I think that you have to, number one, say, is there a way to get initial traction and to find the initial white space? And then is there some kind of a plan where I could protect that? Because... If so, then the first isn't helpful without the latter, right? Like if I can't actually protect it, then, and and we've seen a lot of this in the digital landscape where it's like, yeah, this this works for six months or nine months, but it's not defensible for six years. And I'm not really interested in building a company that, you know, like I'm going to put in a lot of hard work and then I'm just going to watch it kind of slip through my fingers. So we've approached this in a number of different ways. One of the ways we've approached it is, we have a significant part of our portfolio that's licensing. And licensing is kind of a naturally moated space where only a certain number of people are licensed and uh, they're given kind of exclusive distribution. So that would be an example of a moat. Uh, another moat is scale, actually. Uh, but you know what we really came to was the moat has to be brand. It has to be brand in a space, a commoditized space like hydration. And we are going to have to figure out how to build really high brand loyalty and brand affinity. Early on in the company, we went to, there's a show in Chicago called the uh, International Home Housewares Show. And most of the major uh, brands, especially like physical retail brands, go to the show. And the focus of the first show we went to was actually hydration, even though it was a houseware show. And I remember just being overwhelmed by the number of companies in our space. And we, we had like the rinkiest, you know, rinky dink little booth. Uh, the other companies had these like massive booths. They'd spent all this money on. And it was just, it highlighted to me how undercapitalized we were and how many other competitors there were. And I remember really distinctly at the end of one of the days, I pulled the team together and I said, listen, you know, guys, it's, it's very simple. Either, either this is worth something, either this, this logo on our cup is worth something, or we're toast, that's it, you know? And it highlighted that fact to me that you have to be building a moat through brand because in most consumer products, there's not a structural way to protect the business outside of some things like licensing. So that's been a huge focus uh, as well for us. So we, we, we find it when we can, we find the moats that we can based on, you know, how we price our products or the type of distribution we have. But then we put a ton of emphasis on once we get customers, how do we keep them simple modern customers, make sure that they're delighted with buying from the company? How do we build the brand awareness and brand equity?
0: Yeah. Okay. So of course, now I'm going to dive into that because, yeah, I had a quote on here where you were essentially saying anyone can source like a top quality product these days, like you need to focus on the brand. And I was thinking about, I mean, with you guys, I think you were Amazon first, you launched on Amazon and I know now you're in many other places and you've got your website and stuff, but how did you think about building brand loyalty and making people recognize that logo and you know have enough loyalty to come back again?
1: Sure. So there's different ways that you can build, I would say brand attractiveness or, or brand loyalty. One approach is you spend a whole bunch of money marketing and and convincing people that your thing is the popular thing. That was not really an option for us for several reasons. One of them being when we initially entered the market we realized our value proposition needs to be premium quality at a more affordable price so the gross margins just weren't there to go out and you know blow millions of dollars on influencer or, you know whatever else so the approach we had to take was we're going to get as many bottles and tumblers in hand as possible because when people use the product they're like this is fantastic and what I paid for what I got. I, I I, tend to think that our product has one of the biggest discrepancies between the amount of utility and usage and satisfaction you get out of it for what you paid out of anything. Like I can't even fill up the gas tank in my car for $25, but you can buy a water bottle of ours that will last you, could last you for 10 years, you know, and you could use it every day for 10 years. Like how many things can we buy where that like for $25, but that's even a possibility, right? And so as a result, we realized the magic is people actually using the product because it becomes self-evident to them how great our value proposition is once they use our product. So in the early years, Stephanie, it was really this kind of mad dash of how do we get as many bottles in hands as possible? Sometimes you're taking advantage of sales. Some, I mean, you're really doing pretty much whatever you can to try and gain enough distribution so that a significant number of people know about you. As we started to get a foothold there, that's when a couple of things happened. The major retailers started to get interested and that created another opportunity to expose a lot more customers. You know Target was our, our really keystone partner in taking the brand to mass retail. And they did a fantastic job of growing the brand awareness. At this point, now, we've probably sold a product to 15 to 20 million people in the United States. So we've finally gotten to kind of scale and mass. Uh, and now it's really about the experience that people have as they buy from us. Are we continuing to deliver on our core value proposition? What's our net promoter score? Like our net promoter score on our website, we measure this regularly, is an 88. So as a result, when people kind of get added to the simple modern snowball, they don't fall off very often because we really invest in making sure you have a great experience at a great price. And when you don't, we make it right. So we're, we're at scale now. But if you look at some of our things like Google search or Amazon uh, search, like how much are people showing up and saying, I want to buy Simple Modern. We're, we're growing somewhere between 25 and 40% year over year, which at our, at our scale is really significant. And so now at this point, we're probably selling, I would guess, you know, between four and five million units digitally every year, and maybe half of those are, are people that are saying they're not coming through ads. They're just either getting on Google and saying I want to go to simplemodern.com or I want to go to Amazon. I want to search for simple modern. Uh, so we have a really significant base of the business, which is people that are like I want to buy simple modern. We still have to go out there and compete in winning new customers and exposing new people to the brand. But the entire business has this stability because there's a big chunk of it that's not dependent on marketing. It's people that are really bought in on what we're building and what we're about. One of the things that I see a lot of and I think is fantastic is there's just a lot more conscientiousness among founders and business leaders that what your business about is about matters, how it treats people, you know, the way that it impacts the local community. That These things matter the downside is people don't care until they understand that they love your product you can be great you can have a heart of gold and be about great things but if your product is overpriced or no good people are not going to want to buy from you the magic combination i'm convinced is when you first demonstrate to the market that we make great products at really great prices And then once they buy your product and they use it and they fall in love with it, and then they learn what you're about, it's like, oh, well, I definitely want to keep buying from this company because I loved my experience and I love what they're about. And so it becomes kind of like the second layer to building brand is when a customer, when you've drawn a customer in enough that they want to know what you're about and and what the company stands for, because they've loved your product, that they're delighted by what they learn. And, and that's how you create, I think, in, in this age of higher just awareness from customers and uh, higher importance that we're buying from companies that we believe in, that's how you create the kind of brand loyalty and the kind of moat that I think we're talking about.
0: There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities, to interesting investment ideas, to the latest research in health and exercise, and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't talk about. Publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. That's such an interesting point that you just said, because that was a space that I was watching get mm, a little muddied up where a lot of founders were trying to come in and they were focusing on the social good aspect from the beginning and not focusing on their product enough. And it was just interesting watching how that doesn't work out. Like social good can come, but you really have to have a good product. And like you said, no one's going to care if you don't have a good product because then you won't have any money anyways to like send to what you're trying to help out. And it was it's interesting because a lot of people started getting it backwards, I think, because the environment we're in, it was also being pressured on founders from like very early on, like you got to give back, you got to give back. And it's like you watch founders who kind of missed the mark on actually building a company and then they didn't have any profits to give back. So.
1: Right. One of the things that I'll say is you earn the right to be idealistic. Through executing and building and passing on value to the customer, you earn the right to be able to define, okay, here's what our company is about, and here's how we're going to use the excess resources. I mean, we have a lot of nonprofit partners that we give to annually. Giving is a a part of our company's rhythms. But the best thing I can do to support our nonprofit partners is run a financially healthy business. Because that means that we're going to be able to partner with them and help them for years to come. So i I think you're right. I think it's great to have vision from day one of what you want to build and what you want it to be about. But you can't let that confuse you into that's why people are going to buy. Early on, people are going to buy because you're executing and you're delivering value to them. And if you do that for long enough and you build a group of people that are excited about your product, as they learn more about what you're wanting to build and what you're about that's going to really create an even higher uh, amount of lock in and and brand loyalty
0: yeah I agree so what's interesting when thinking about you know how you've built this company is like a lot about the past and where you came from so i know previously you said like you know you all had worked in e-commerce you had deep e-commerce experiences. And I actually wanted to kind of go back to that, to uh, Quibid's previous company. I would love to hear, first off, you know, telling the listeners like what was Quibid's and your experience while working there. Because I know it has to inform what you do day to day here, because I've seen your quotes around, you know, a company can't be built on ads and dependent on ads and marketing. And I'm like, hmm, I think he got this from his last company, like these lessons, but I would love to hear the story.
1: So I was working in the nonprofit world And leading a ministry, basically. I have a younger brother who's about two and a half years younger. This is in uh, 2009. And he had been really successful in affiliate marketing, basically. And wanted to build a new company. And he had this idea for this auction website. It was, you know, people came to call them penny auctions or reverse auctions or whatever. And he asked me if I'd be willing to help him on it. And my thought at the time was just, oh, this is interesting. It would be a fun little side project. I mean, and I mean, I really expected it to be a little side project that I worked on, but helped him recruit a few other people to start the business and said, I'll help on nights and weekends kind of thing. That business launched in October, 2009. And I'd say the first six months We're trying to kind of figure out, first of all, how you run the auction model, which is what I was really responsible for. Like it had a bunch of nuance that we had to figure out and then figuring out how do we market this. Uh, By about mid 2010, we really had figured out how to market it by November of 2010. So we're talking 13 months after founding. It had its first million dollar revenue day. Day. In its first seven years, it probably did a billion dollars in revenue. Wow, and so it was a crazy situation. I'm the oldest person at the company. I'm like 30. Uh, it's total kind of inmates running the asylum. None of us know enough to even understand how absurd what's going on is. And you know, there's we're in Oklahoma, which is not exactly the e-commerce capital of the world. So like, the whole thing is just kind of wild. We're hiring people left and right, trying to keep up with the growth. What ensued over the next few years was just like kind of getting an MBA on crack. I eventually realized I needed to move full-time into the business world because I was trying to do too many things. So I moved full-time into the business world. And as you know, being good in e-commerce, you have to, especially at scale, you end up having to like be good at legal and advertising and analytics and merchandising and inventory management, fulfillment and, you know, technology. I mean, just to give you a picture, like AWS was not really even a thing at this point. Like we were literally buying servers that we had in cages. And the whole process deeply impacted the way that I thought about scaling. It deeply impacted the way I thought about what type of company do I someday want to be able to build. And I made a lot of mistakes and I saw a lot of mistakes that we made in that process. And, you know, second-time founders are just more successful statistically, and it's not at all surprising to me why, because this really is something that you learn by doing and you learn through repetition. And one of the things that's difficult about companies is that you make decisions and those decisions get kind of baked into the foundation of the company and are hard to undo whether you're talking about cultural decisions or org chart decisions or capital structure or ownership, all of those things, you kind of drag those along with you through the life of the company. So it was really powerful for me to go through that entire experience. And then when we started Simple Modern to have really specific ideas about how I wanted to approach this differently as a result of the things that I had learned through that first experience. This is a, it's a small example, and but it, it's a great way of highlighting, hey, how atypical our company is. I had realized that I really believed in collaboration and in a collaborative environment. And I didn't want to build a company where I was just kind of an authoritative leader.
0: Mm-hmm. Was that the case in the previous company? Was it like authoritative environment? Or? You know,
1: my brother was in the CEO role and he was like an 85% owner and so he just naturally had a lot of that responsibility on his shoulders. And I think he would say he learned through that process and sometimes he did a better job or a worse job. But what I realized is the way you do ownership even can structurally impact the way that decisions get made two, three, five years down the line, that you're kind of building a foundation. So the way that we structured our ownership uh, voting interests in the company when we started Simple Modern was super atypical. Uh, I, I brought the seed funding, you know, the bootstrap funding for the company, but I took exactly 50.0% of the voting interest. And people will be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Everybody says, take at least 50.1. Why would you take 50.0? But the point was actually because I literally can't force anything to happen if I can't convince one of the other owners that this is the right course of action. But I also have the ability to kind of veto anything that I feel like would take the company in a direction that's different than the way we created it to be. And so there's a lot of little Easter eggs like that throughout how we structured the company. And even today, if you walked around our offices, there'd be things that would be like, hey, that's interesting. Why do you do it that way? But a lot of it goes back to our experience with quibbids. I think one of the overriding experiences that we took away from Quibids was that if you're heavily, heavily dependent on paid marketing, you live by the sword and you die by the sword. And certainly we saw very high highs. Um, But then there was a point where we could not effectively uh, advertise in some channels and the business just took gaps down, right? And I think a lot of people have experienced this in the D2C world over the last year, year and a half is since the iOS update came out that really impaired Facebook's ability to see what's going on and to optimize for conversions, a lot of businesses have just taken a pretty big step backward because of the dependence on paid marketing for for customer acquisition. So from the early days of Simple Modern, we really asked the question of how can we leverage networks and distribution that's already in place to acquire customers where we're not completely dependent on paid advertising. Uh, like one of the ways this plays out our uh, advertising as a percentage of sales in a given year is probably about two to 3%. You know, And it's not uncommon to see people in the D2C space where it's 20 or 30 or 40%. And so that's required us to do some things when it comes to how we price our product and how we think about our value proposition and some other things. But ultimately, it's created a company that's felt a lot more stable, uh, especially over the last 18 months.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, I have heard that theme from a lot of people on this show of just, you know, how reliant companies became on Facebook ads, really. And it's just such a different world now. So what do you think when you see this, knowing what you know, knowing your experience and knowing how you built your company, like what would your advice be? Yeah,
1: I think where you get into trouble is when you think that your company can operate at a certain level and you build your overhead and you build your finances and you build your inventory around that level, and then a sudden change in marketing rates, you realize you can't operate at that level at all. And all of a sudden you got all this working capital tied up, you've got too many people. So I'd be more of an advocate, because I think it's the kind of the question of the day and it's difficult to pivot quickly you know, when all of a sudden uh, a channel dries up. This is where I think an omni-channel approach is really what every brand that's successful. I mean, even if you look at some of the kind of darlings of the D2C space, the all birds of the world, these companies aren't making any money and they don't even have a path to making money right now that I can see, like the, the brands that are doing really well, there are mostly omni-channel. There's this combination of how they're leveraging Wholesale, D2C, Amazon, several different channels in order to create a composite that's more stable and allows them to be really profitable at the same time. So uh, I mean, I guess one thing I would say is at this point, I've been doing kind of D2C in some form or another for 14 years, which makes me like an absolute dinosaur in the D2C space. I've I've seen it all. If you're not making money on first purchase, then with a significant percentage of your customers, it's gonna be tough. You know, like there are some some exceptions to this. If you just have an outstanding subscription model, you know, or your return, return engagement, you know, percentage is just through the roof. But for most types of companies, you gotta find ways to be making money on day one. And if you're not, the the siren song is kind of like, well, here's our lifetime user value, and it's fifty, and so even if we're, you know, five dollars in the hole on day one, by six months, twelve months, eighteen months, we'll get to pay back. And what you learn is that that's just a dangerous game because you're always a recession away from insolvency, and it's really difficult to predict what's going to happen. A year from now or two years from now. Lifetime user values. The idea of projecting out a lifetime of behavior in somebody when we live in a world that's so dynamic is going to be really tough. And that's not to say that you don't try to kind of wrap your arms around those things. It's just when you plan around those things as certainty, then you, you really run into danger. So that's kind of our strategy is that we've got a portfolio where our risk is kind of diversified between, and each of our channels has risk. Like selling in Target has risk. I wouldn't want anybody to hear me say something different than that. And you can lose money selling in Target. Like that's a, that's something that can happen, but it's different types of risks. And so what you don't want to have is where all of the risk in your business is concentrated around one or two variables. Like, hey, if Apple does something else, we gap down 50%, you know, whatever, those are the the kind of kill shots. So you asked a question earlier about moats and how do you protect and moat your business? Another way to think about that is not how do you protect it from, you know, like competition per se, but more how do you protect it against systemic risk? And that's where you know, hey, there, these are all the bad things that could happen that would negatively impact my business. But I'm trying to build a business where none of those things is kill shots, right? Or none of those things is so materially- detrimental that that it puts the business in danger.
0: Yeah, I love that. Okay, so many good things to cover in this episode. So I wanted to talk about culture as like the last topic, but I know we don't have a ton of time. So I will say that we'll have to bring you back around to to really have like a whole conversation around that. But maybe to tease a future conversation. I want to hear what your one thing when it comes to building culture at Simple Modern, which I read about I read how great it is how happy the employees are how generous you are. You had a quote that says, like, don't teach shipbuilding, teach a love for the sea, like so many good nuggets that I want to talk about. However, just one of like, if you were to recommend one thing to a founder or a CEO thinking about like how to build a, build a good culture, what would you advise?
1: So I'll, I'll bifurcate it into two because the first thing I'm going to say won't work for some founders. You know, I think when we went to remote work and some, some of the people listening to that, this are running a remote culture. So the first thing I'm going to say isn't applicable, so I'm going to give two. I would say one of the most powerful things we do is one of the most simple. We pay for lunch every single day that people are in the office. We run a hybrid culture where Monday and Friday, people can work from wherever they want. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, everybody's in the office. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we always bring in lunch. And the reason is simple, because everybody ends up getting food and eating together and spending time together. And there's at least three to four hours every single week where you are just interacting with, connecting on a personal level with your coworkers. And that has a profound impact in how bonded you feel to the community. As people, we long for community and connection. And no matter how our technology advances, these will always be the things that our heart desires. And the more that we lack those things in our work, the more that our work is transactional. And the more that our work is transactional, the more that we're going to bounce around and become mercenaries in how we think about where we work and why we work there. But when people bond to a community, it becomes a lot more than a paycheck. And I'll I'll even expound on that thought a little bit more. The reason why people care what they get paid is primarily because they want to increase their quality of life. And they feel like if I had more resources, I could turn that into higher quality of life. But here's an interesting thing I can share from personal experience. I have had years where I made $18,000 as my salary to at this point, I make greater than $18,000, we'll say. I've, I've been in a huge range and what I have found is that my quality of life correlates to my income surprisingly weakly. That it's actually not that tight of a correlation. What really drives quality of life is, first and foremost, the quality of the relationships in my life. And whether or not I feel like those are in a healthy place, that's a huge part of it. So if you can build a culture and a team where the people really are bonded to each other and like working together, you can make it through all kinds of adversity and you can build something great. And if you can't, your chances of building something great are almost zero because you have to unlock compounding to build really great things and really big things. And you cannot unlock compounding if you're constantly churning through people. It's just impossible. So that's, that's one thing I would say. Another thing we do every single week, we have an hour where I either I'll teach about one of our company values or we'll do a get to know you with two or three of the new employees or whatever. But like we have intentional time set aside throughout the week where people connect on a more relational and developmental level and over time that has created a very atypical culture. So that's for the people who can pull that off. Even if you're remote, I think there's some ways you can think about how do we create that for the more broad application, I would say great leaders cast a compelling vision that people want to be a part of. They're able to say here's a future that is possible and here's what it looks like, here's what it tastes like, here's what it- what it would feel like if we were all a part of it, right? And isn't that exciting? Can't you just like picture that? And let's go after that because that's meaningful. Because like when we're 80 and we're thinking like how we spend our time working, we'll be like, I didn't waste all that, right? Like I actually feel really good about that. And here's why it'll make a positive impact on the world. And here's why, like, I'm going to feel great about the time I invested during my work week. And it's not just, I was collecting a paycheck. And when you can do that, It motivates, it inspires, it aligns, it organizes people and the best people wanna work with you. Like the easiest, I, I tried to put this into words last night on Twitter and I couldn't and so I just didn't send it out. But business is fundamentally the organizing of people. It's getting people to cooperate with each other to accomplish things and solve problems. That's all it is. And if at any point you lose sight of that, then you become dramatically less effective. And when you realize it's like, it's all about people, even if there's all this kind of tactical and strategic stuff that those people do, ultimately it's all about people. And people want to believe that their life matters and that their life is about something transcendent and they wanna be a part of a larger community, like all these themes. And so regardless of whether your team is all in the same place or they're all over the world, being able to cast a compelling vision of where you're headed and how by working together and accomplishing the work you have in front of you, you make a positive impact in the world here's th- this is a simple example, but I think it it gets at the point i'm I'm talking about Yeah, you know, we make water bottles, right? like this is not epic
0: you know some water kind bottles. Of
1: their, yes, <laughs> yeah, it's just water bottles, but one of the stories I tell i While I've taught at OU, I have a co-teacher, and for several years we taught together. Her name was Denise. And Denise lost her mom at an earlier age, but she has a very close, had a very close relationship with her father. So during COVID, her father wasn't feeling well, went to the doctor, and they found out he had a very aggressive form of stage four cancer. She went to stay with him in Florida and was taking care of him. He was functionally in hospice care. And after a couple months in this, I sent her a text and I just said, hey, how's your dad doing? And she said, "He, he passed away, but I wanted to share a story with you. In his last few weeks, because of the medication and because of the cancer, he could not drink very well. And the only thing we found that he could drink out of was one of your kids' bottles that we bought at Target. And she's like, it's a small thing, but it made a difference in my dad's final week's you know, and it brought him relief. And I just wanted to say thank you. And so I, I shared that story with our team. Because yeah, we're just making water bottles. And in a lot of ways, who cares? But in another sense, like, you know what? It mattered to him. It mattered to that family. And when we do our job with excellence, we have the ability to positively impact millions of people's lives, even if it's in a small way. And that's significant. The giving stuff, we talk about that, but it, But this is an example of how you can lead your team and align your team. And what I found is it's really remarkable what teams that are led with compelling vision can accomplish.
0: Man, that is a great way to end this episode. And also, I mean, we talked about so much in it today. We were talking about identifying white space in an industry. We talked about how to build a moat. talked about building a stable omni-channel sales and marketing strategy and hearing your thoughts on culture and building like a company for the future we seriously covered it all and i'll have to bring you back for round two so with that mike thank you so much for coming on the show and where can our listeners and watchers find more about you and your company
1: absolutely so the website simple it's simplemodern.com you can find me on twitter at mike beckham sm for simple modern or also on linkedin i'm pretty active on both of those
0: channels